Chapter 1, Part 2 of The Guns of Bull Run by Joseph A. Altscheller. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Michael Packard of Western Colorado. The Guns of Bull Run. Chapter 1 News from Charleston. Part 2. He opened the door, hung his hat and overcoat in the hall, and entered the large apartment which his father and he habitually used as a reading and sitting room. It was more than twenty feet square, with a lofty ceiling, a homemade carpet thick and closely woven, and rich in colors covered the floor. Around the walls were cases containing books mostly in rich bindings, and nearly all English classics. American work was scarcely represented at all. The books read most often by Colonel Kenton were the novels of Walter Scott, whom he preferred greatly to Dickens. Scott always wrote about gentlemen. A great fire of hickory logs blazed on the wide hearth. Colonel Kenton was alone in the room. He stood at the edge of the hearth, with his back to the fire and his hands crossed behind him. His tanned face was slightly pale and Harry saw that he had been subjected to great nervous excitement, which had not yet wholly abated. The colonel was a tall man, broad of chest, but lean and muscular. He regarded his son attentively, and his eyes seemed to ask a question. Yes, said Harry, although his father had not spoken a word. I heard of it, and I've already seen one of its results. What was that? asked Colonel Kenton quickly. As I came through the town... Bill Skelly, a mountaineer, shot at Arthur Travers. It came out of hot words over the news from Charleston. Nobody was hurt, and they sent Skelly on his pony towards the mountains. Colonel Kenton's face clouded. I'm sorry, he said. I fear that Travers will be much too free with stinging remarks. It's a time when men should control their tongues. Do you be careful with yours. You're a youth in years, but you're a man in size and you should be a man in thought, too. You and I have been close together, and I have trusted you, even when you were a little boy. It's so, father, replied Harry, with affection and gratitude, and I'm going to trust you yet further. It may be that I shall give you a task requiring great skill and energy. The colonel looked closely at his son, and he gave silent approval to the tall, well-knit form and the alert, eager face. We'll have supper presently, he said, and then we will talk with visitors, some you know and some you don't. One of them who has come far is already in the house. Harry's eyes showed surprise, but he knew better than to ask questions. The colonel had carried his military training into private life. He's a distant relative of ours, very distant, but a relative still, continued Colonel Kenton. You will meet him at supper. Be ready in a half hour. The dinner of city life was still called supper in the south, and Harry hastened to his room to prepare. His heart began to throb with excitement. Now they were to have visitors at night, and a mysterious stranger was there. He felt dimly the advance of great events. Harry Kenton was a normal and healthy boy, but the discussions, the debates, and the passions sweeping over the Union throughout the year had sifted into Pendleton also. The news today had merely struck fire to tinder prepared already, and infused with the spirit of youth, he felt much excitement, but no depression. Making a careful toilet, he descended to the drawing-room, 
a little before the regular time. Although he was early, his father was there before him, standing in his customary attitude with his back to the hearth and his hands clasped behind him. "'Our guest will be down in a few minutes,' said Colonel Kenton. "'He comes from Charleston, and his name is Raymond Louis Bertrand. I will explain how he is related to us.' He gave a chain of cousins extending on either side from the Kenton family to the Bertrand family until they joined in the middle. It was a slender tie of kinship, but it sufficed in the South. As he finished, Bertrand himself came in, and was introduced formally to his Kentucky cousin. Harry would have taken him for a Frenchman, and he was, in very truth, largely of French blood. His black eyes and hair, his swarthy complexion, gleaming white teeth, and quick, volatile manner, showed some descent from France, who had come from the ancient soil by way of Haiti, and the great Negro rebellion to the coast of South Carolina. He seemed strange and foreign to Harry, and yet he liked him. And this is my young cousin, the one who is likely to be so zealous for our cause, he said, smiling at Harry, with flashing black eyes. You are a stalwart lad. They grow bigger and stronger here than in our warm Carolina coast. Raymond arrived only three hours ago, said Colonel Kenton in explanation leaving only three hours after the resolution in favor of secession was adopted. And a rough journey it was, said Bertrand vivaciously. I was rattled and shaken by the trains, and I made some of the connections by horseback over the wild hills. Then it was a long ride through the snow to your hospitable home here, my good cousin Colonel Kenton. But I had minute directions, and no one noticed a stranger who came so quietly around the town and then entered your house. Harry said nothing, but watched him intently. Bertrand spoke with a rapid lightness and grace, and an abundance of gesture, to which he was not used in Kentucky. He ate plentifully, and although his manners were delicate, Harry felt to an increasing degree his foreign aspect and spirit. He did not wonder at it when he learned later that Bertrand, besides being chiefly of French blood, had also been educated in Paris. "'Was there much enthusiasm in South Carolina when the state seceded, Raymond?' asked Colonel Kenton. "'I saw greatest joy and confidence everywhere,' he replied, the color flaming through his olive face. "'The whole state is ablaze. Charleston is the heart and soul of our new alliance, Rhett and Yancey of Alabama, and the great orators.' make the souls of men leap. Ah, sir, if you could only have been in Charleston in the course of recent months, if you could have heard the speakers, if you could have seen how the great and righteous Calhoun's influence lives after him, and then the writers, the able newspaper, the Mercury, has thundered daily of our cause, Sims the novelist, and Timrod and Hain, the poets have written of it. All the cities of the North boast of their size and wealth, but they cannot match Charleston in culture and spirit and vivacity. Harry saw that Bertrand felt and believed every word he said, and his enthusiasm was communicated to the colonel, whose face flushed, and to Harry, too, whose own heart was beating faster. It was a great deed, exclaimed Colonel Kenton. South Carolina has always dared to speak her mind. 
but here in Kentucky some of the cold north blood flows in our veins, and we pause to calculate and consider. We must hasten events. Now, Raymond, we will go into the library. Our friends will be here in a half hour. Harry, you are to stay with us. I told you you are to be trusted. They left the table, and went into the great room where the fire had been built anew, and was casting a ruddy welcome through the windows. The two men sat down before the blaze, and each fell silent, engrossed in his thoughts. Harry felt it pleased excitement. Here was a great and mysterious affair, but he was going to have admittance to the heart of it. He walked to the window, lifted the curtain, and looked out. A slender, erect figure was already coming up the walk, and he recognized Travers. Travers knocked at the door and was received cordially. Colonel Kenton introduced Bertrand, saying, The messenger from the South. Travers shook hands and nodded also to signify that he understood. Then came Culver, the state senator from the district, a man of middle years, bulky, smooth-shaven, and oratorical. He was followed soon by Bracken, a tobacco farmer on a great scale, Judge Kendrick, Reed and Wayne, both lawyers, and several others all of wealth or of influence in that region. Besides Harry, there were ten in the room. I believe that we are all here now, said Colonel Kenton. I keep my son with us because, for reasons I will explain later, I shall nominate him for the task that is needed. We do not question your judgment, Colonel, said Senator Culver. He is a strong and likely lad, but I suggest that we go at once to business. Mr. Bertrand, you will inform us what further steps are to be taken by South Carolina and her neighboring states. South Carolina may set an example, but if the others do not follow, she will merely be a sacrifice. Bertrand smiled. His smile always lighted up his olive face in a wonderful way. It was a smile, too, of supreme confidence. Do not fear, he said. Alabama, Mississippi, Florida, and Louisiana are ready. We have word from them all. It is only a matter of a few days until every state in the lower south goes out, and we want also, and we need greatly, those on the border, famous states like your Kentucky and Virginia. Do you not see that you are threatened? With the triumph of the rail-splitter Lincoln, the seat of power is transformed to the north. It is not alone a question of slavery. The balance of the Union is destroyed. The South loses leadership, her population is not increasing rapidly, and hereafter she will merely hold the stirrup while the North sits in the saddle. A murmur arose from the men. More than one clenched his hands until the nails pressed into the flesh. Harry, still standing by the window, felt the influence of the South Carolinian's words more deeply, perhaps, than any other. The North appeared to him cold jealous and vengeful. You are right about Kentucky and Virginia, said Senator Culver. The secession of two such strong states would strike terror in the North. It would influence the outside world, and we would be in a far better position for war if it should come. Governor McGuffin will have to call a special session of the legislature, and I think there will be enough of us in both Senate and House to take Kentucky out. Bertrand's dark face glowed. You must do it, he exclaimed. And if you do, our cause is won. There was a thoughtful silence, broken at last by Colonel Kenton, who turned an inquiring eye upon Bertrand. 
I wish to ask you about the Knights of the Golden Circle, he said. I hear they are making a great headway in the Gulf States. Raymond hesitated for a moment. It seemed that he too felt for the first time a difference between himself and these men about him, who were so much less demonstrative than he. But he recovered his poise quickly. I speak to you frankly, he replied. When our new confederation is formed, it is likely to expand. A hostile union will lie across our northern border, but to the south the way is open. There is our field. Spain grows weak, and the great island of Cuba will fall from her grasp, and Mexico is torn by one civil war and another. It is a grand country, and it would prosper mightily in strong hands. Beyond lie the unstable states of Central America, also awaiting good rulers. Colonel Kenton frowned, and the lawyers looked doubtful. I can't say that I like your prospect, the colonel said. It seems to me that your knights of the Golden Circle meditate a great slave empire which will eat its way even into South America. Slavery is not wholly popular here. Henry Clay long ago wished it to be abolished, and his is a mighty name among us. It would be best to say little in Kentucky of the knights of the Golden Circle. Our climate is a little too cold for such a prospect. Bertrand bit his lip. Swift and volatile, he showed disappointment. But, still swift and volatile, he recovered quickly. I have no doubt that you are right, Colonel Kenton, he said, in a tone of one who conforms gracefully. And I shall be careful when I go to Frankfurt with Senator Culver to say nothing about it. But Harry, who watched him all the time, read tenacity and purpose in his eyes. This man would not relinquish his great southern dream, a dream of vast domination, and he had a powerful society behind him. What news, then, will you send to Charleston? asked Bertrand at length. Will you tell her that Kentucky, the state of great names, will stand beside her? Such a message shall be carried to her, replied Colonel Kenton, speaking for them all. And I propose that my son, Harry, will be the messenger. These are troubled times, gentlemen, and full of peril. We dare not trust to the mails, and a lad carrying letters would arouse the least suspicion. He is strong and resourceful. I, his father, should know best, and I am willing to devote him to the cause. Harry started when he heard the words of his father, and his heart gave a great leap of mingled surprise and joy. Such a journey... Such an enterprise made an instant appeal to his impulsive and daring spirit. But he did not speak, waiting upon the words of his elders. All of them looked at him, and it seemed to Harry that they were measuring him, both body and mind. I have known the boy since his birth, said Senator Culver, and he is all that you say. There is none stronger or better. The choice is good. Good, aye, good indeed, said the impetuous Bertrand. How they will welcome him in Charleston! Then, gentlemen, said Colonel Kenton very soberly, you are all agreed that my son shall carry to South Carolina the message that Kentucky will follow her out of the Union? We are, they said all together. I shall be glad and proud to go, said Harry, speaking for the first time. I knew it without asking you, said Colonel Kenton. I suggest to you, friends, that he start before dawn, and that he go to Winton instead of the nearest station. We wish to avoid observation and suspicion. The fewer questions he has to answer, the better it will be for all of us. They agreed with him again. And in order that he might be fresh and strong for his journey, Harry was sent to his bedroom. Everything would be made ready for him. 
and Colonel Kenton would call him at the appointed hour. As he withdrew, he bade them in turn good night, and they returned his courtesy gravely. It was one thing to go to his room, but it was another to sleep. He undressed and sat on the edge of the bed. Only when he was alone did he realize the tremendous change that had come into his life, nor into his life alone, but into the lives of all he knew, and of millions more. It had ceased snowing, and the wind was still. The earth was clothed in deep and quiet white, and the pines stood up, rows of white cones, silvered by the moonlight. Nothing moved out there. No sound came. He felt awed by the world of night and the mysterious future, which must be full of strange and great events. He lay down between the covers, and, although sleep was long in coming, it came at last, and it was without dreams. End of chapter 1, part 2 Recorded by Michael Packard of Western Colorado